But anyways, hey guys, it's good to see you here. If you want to grab a Bible, we're going to jump right into it. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, looking, starting at verse uh, 19. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I think that's on page something 980 in that Bible in front of you. If you want to grab one of those Bibles, if you do not have one, please take that Bible with you. That's a gift uh, from us to you. Uh, please take that home with you. It'll be on page, again, 980, something in there. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. So let's jump into it. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one else like him who takes a genuine concern for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has Serve with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor men such as him. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me ask for God's help. Father, as we uh, come in this time, we gather two or more in your presence, acknowledging that you're with us. You tell us that your word is living and active, and so in Jesus' name, would our hearts be receptive and humble to the living and active word of God. Father, would you take this word and what seems to be just a travel itinerary, would you use it to display who Christ is and who we are because of who Christ is? And in that, Lord, to lead us out into a world that desperately needs to see witnesses, examples of those who are following Christ in a way that reflects the beauty and the truth of the gospel. So, Father, meet us here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this seems for... Pretty much every standpoint, just to be a simple travel itinerary. Paul is in Rome. He's in prison. He's been chained to a Roman guard for the last period of time, 24-7. Every single day, he's chained to a Roman guard. And when you're in a Roman prison, you need someone to take care of your needs. It wasn't as if they had meals that were prepared for you. Instead, all of those things were taken care of by those who cared for you. And so the Philippians, knowing that Paul is in prison have sent this gift, a gift of money, with this guy named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus has traveled from Philippi all the way to Rome. Now, in his travels from Philippi to Rome, Epaphroditus along the way becomes ill. And as Paul says, he becomes ill almost to the point of death. But instead of turning around, instead of heading back to his comfort, instead of going back to the place that he was comfortable in, Epaphroditus continues. He goes on to Rome and to Paul to give him this gift, And to be with him there. And Paul's saying to the Philippians, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back with you. And as Epaphroditus goes back, this letter that we have, 
was sent back with Epaphroditus because the Philippians are wondering, what happened to Paul? We heard that Epaphroditus was sick. Did he die on the way? Did he make it to Paul? Has Paul, has his trial been completed? Has he been executed? They're in the dark concerning what's taking place. And Paul says, I'm going to send back to you Epaphroditus. He's going to share word of what's going on. And eventually, once I find out what happens to me, meaning once my trial has ended, I'm going to send back to you as well. I'm going to send Timothy to you. Timothy's going to come to you, give word of my condition, what's taking place, check in on you, and then Timothy's going to travel back to Rome to share news of what's happening in Philippi. So from the outset, it seems like this is just simply a story of travel and what's going to take place in Paul's dreams, but there's more to it than that. You see, as we read a letter, we have to jump into it in the context in which it's written. So if you want to jump back with me, you have a Bible, we're going to turn back to chapter 1, verse 27. You see, in chapter 1, verse 27, I think we have the thesis verse, the main idea of the entire letter to the Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, uh, whether I come and see you, or am absent, and I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The main idea of the book of Philippians is to live your life worthy of the gospel of our King. We're to live a life worthy of the gospel of our King. And then Paul in chapter 2 envisions a church that is characterized by two things. A church that's characterized by unity and humility. And so when you go to chapter 2, what, what he begins to do in the first four verses is describe what a life looks like of unity and then humility. And so pick it up in chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says in verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in, in full accord in one mind. He's saying, I want the church to be unified. Now, to be unified, not just around any doctrine, but rather to be unified around the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is and the gospel. I want you to be unified around these things. And then second, I want you to be characterized by a life of humility. Watch this, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's a definition of humility. In a sense, humility is counting others better than yourselves. In some ways, he defines that further in verse 4. That means letting each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interest of others. Paul says, I want the church to live out the gospel in two ways, in unity around what we believe and then around humility. That as we move out into the world, we move out in unity and humility. Now, what's going to happen in verses 5 all the way to the end of chapter 2 is we need examples. We need examples of what that looks like. Words on a page are not enough. We need living testimony, living examples of those that are following Christ and what that looks like to live with unity and humility in a world that rejects us, rejects our God. What does that look like? And so the ultimate example in verses 5 all the way down to verse 11 is, is Jesus. The ultimate example of living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is Jesus, who in very nature God didn't hold on to equality with God as something to use for his benefit. But instead, he humbled himself. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because he did not look to his own interests. 
He looked to the interest of others. We see in Jesus the ultimate example of what that looks like. Then what we found last week is actually a poor example. He said, do nothing out of complaining and grumbling. You know, that's a reflection. It's a storyline. It's going back in the story of history back to the Israelites. If you remember when God rescued them, God did the rescuing and brought them out of Egypt. And he said, there's one thing I want you to do in this journey in life, and that is to trust me. Just trust me. And they would start going through situations that were difficult in which to trust God. And instead of trusting him, what they started to do was to trust in themselves. And they began to grumble and complain instead of walking by faith and trusting what God is doing. And then next, what he says is instead of being like Israel, be like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of what it looks like for us to live out faith in the gospel Faith in our King, our Messiah who has come to rescue us. What does it look like to live out that faith in the world? And what's amazing, I think, about this passage is it doesn't talk about abilities. There are no talents. There's no uh, talking about how wonderful these guys are and their giftings and abilities. Everything that's in this passage points to character. And it points to character that wasn't just given to them at, at, at the time of birth, but instead something that was hard won as they trusted God instead of turning to grumbling and complaining, just like the Israelites, they went through challenges where they had to trust and rely on God instead of looking to their own interests, but looking to the interest of others. And you see in Epaphroditus and Paul and in Timothy an example that we need to follow Christ in the world. Because see, here's the truth. We need examples. We need examples. You know, I went to seminary, but that doesn't mean I know how to lead my sons to follow Christ. I read books about it, but books are not enough. Just because you read books, that doesn't mean that suddenly you're going to get it. It may help, but what I need is a testimony of a man, a father, a wife that are leading their children to follow Christ. I need to see, I need to see examples of godly husbands and wives. Singles need example of godly singles that are following Christ and seeking to pursue Christ. It's not enough just to have written words. We have to have living, active testimonies of that. Church, that's what we're supposed to be. When we gather on a Sunday morning, we gather to be encouraged, we gather to celebrate, we gather to praise. But when we walk out these doors, we walk shoulder to shoulder, side by side to be examples of who God is and what our, what our Savior has done in the world so that others might come to know him. So let's jump into this as we see two living testimonies of what it means to live out the gospel in faith, but also in unity and humility. So let's jump back in, if you will, in verse 19. So Paul says, and he's writing again to the Philippians, and he says, I hope in the Lord. Now notice Paul's saying, I hope. Hope is eager expectation. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking, but rather it's an eager expectation of what he believes is going to happen. And he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. Verse 20, for I have no one else like him, which means Timothy, he's rare, who takes a genuine interest, is genuinely concerned for your welfare. That this guy is not someone who's looking to build his resume. He's not come to Philippi, and he's not heading off to Philippi. He isn't with Paul in Rome so that he can make much of himself. He's not building a career. He's not building a future. What Timothy is seeking to do, and what Paul is saying, is everything he does, he's seeking to do it for the benefit 
of others. Now, why would he do that? Because that's what his Savior has done for him. See, the sign that we have truly experienced Christ's self-sacrifice is self-sacrifice. The sign, in a sense, that we have experienced, like we said before, the sign the kingdom of God is here is that there are people repenting, believing, and being baptized. Well, what's the sign that we have received the self-sacrifice of Jesus? We start growing in our own ability to sacrifice for others instead of for our own interest, but for the interest of others. Do you see that? It's a witness and a testimony of what Christ has done for us. And Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, he's genuine. He genuinely looks out for your interests, and he's willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish that. So verse 21, notice the contrast, because it's going to come at a cost, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, they could be a general statement, but I think he's referring to chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 15, we find out there are those who preach Christ, uh, not for true uh, self-sacrificing reasons, but rather out of envy and rivalry. That it's possible to be a servant in the church and not be a servant. It's possible to serve Christ, but not to serve Christ for Christ's purpose, but rather to serve Christ to get something from him. And he's contrasting Timothy with these other servants, and he's saying Timothy is one who genuinely serves Christ, not for his own benefit and what he can get, but rather for the benefit of others. So watch this parallel. If you turn back in verse 4 of chapter 2, in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul describes the attitude that we should have, the humility we should have this way. Let each of us look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, where did that idea come from? You think of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It means to put the needs of your neighbor ahead of your own. That is a radical command. It's a radical command that I think is so radical, it's impossible apart from faith in Christ. It is impossible. And actually, I think sometimes we don't even try to obey that command. You know, we kind of think, well, that's just for the radical Christians, right? No, he's saying for the ordinary disciples, the way we live out the self-sacrifice of Jesus is by loving others in the same way we love ourselves. How well do you love yourself? And let me clarify, that can mean also by condemning yourself. You love yourself in a sense. You focus on yourself. You're interested in yourself by two things, by thinking much of yourself or by thinking less of yourself, because in either way, you're thinking of yourself. And Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, to love the person next to you, to love the person that doesn't believe what you believe, that it rejects what you believe, that doesn't like what you believe, to the same degree you love yourself. How could you do that? You can't unless there is a God who, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Has that descended to the level of the, from the mind to the heart that Christ, while we were enemies, died for us. While I was cursing him and rejecting him, he looked not to his own interest, but to my interest, and he laid his life down. He's saying in verse 4, that's, that's the focus of, of someone that's pursuing Christ. And then notice in verse 21, he says, they, they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. Paul is setting up Timothy as someone that lives out the gospel with unity and humility. And that character doesn't come cheap because notice verse 22. And I love this word, but you know, Timothy has proven worth. There's a single word in the Greek that has, that's translated with these two words, proven worth. 
And it literally means to have character proven under trial. What he's saying is when Timothy has proven worth, he has the kind of character that comes out of the fire. It's the kind of character that is only possible when you've gone through difficult experiences and instead of complaining and grumbling, instead of trusting in yourself, leaning on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledging him, trusting God in the wilderness, what happens is God produces in us proven character. Now it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 5. So if you want to jump with me or we'll put it up on the screen, Romans chapter 5, verse 3. This is the same concept where Paul says in Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Now why? Not because suffering is good, but instead he says knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces proven worth, character. It produces character and character produces hope. He's saying Timothy is the kind of man who has character that has come through the fire. Which is good news for us because it means if we trust in God, the God of the gospel, the God of Jesus Christ, no matter what you're dealing with today, that God wants to use that in your life to refine you, to purify you, and to strengthen you, not to destroy you. The challenge is you've got to change the narrative. We've all got a broken narrative in our minds that I deserve better. Right? Am I the only one that feels that way? I do. God, I deserve better. God, I deserve a better life than this is not the life I chose. This is not, you know what that's called? God's rescued me out of Egypt from myself. And I'm looking back at Egypt and saying, you know, I want to be selfish again. And in a sense, it's okay to grieve that life hasn't turned out the way that you hoped. That's okay. God understands that. So don't hear me saying it's, it's wrong to grieve. But when we turn to complaining and grumbling, what we're saying is, I'm the center, I deserve better, and God has abandoned me. That is a false narrative. The gospel says, no, the creator God is watching over you. He does not slumber, he does not sleep, and nothing is going to snatch you from from his hands. But the question is right now in this trial, are you going to trust him? Are you going to lean on your own understanding? But in all your ways, instead, are you going to acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight? There is a character that God can only produce through the trials of life. And in this room, I want you to understand every trial is represented. Every trial is not represented on this stage, folks. Don't look to me. If you're looking to me to have wisdom in every trial in life, I am inadequate. In speaking to your life, I haven't gone through that. Do you see how the body of Christ works? If you simply look to the quote-unquote professional Christians, they don't have the resources. The kinds of people you need to trust are the people sitting next to you, the people who have lost children in tragic accidents, the people who have gone through divorce. They know the shame. They know the pain. They know the difficulties. They know the hardships. Those that are struggling with desires that they don't want to admit because they think the people next to them will condemn them instead of pointing them to Christ. There are those in this room that struggle. There are those that are walking through addictions and hardship. Those that are walking through the lies of the past, whether they're parents or themselves. There are those that are walking through difficulties, and what they need is proven character. They don't need just simply some truth, some idea to come from my mouth. Rather, they need to see Someone living the gospel out in unity and humility. Church, we have to rise to a greater occasion than spectators. 
We are not consumers of the Christian life. We are disciples following Jesus with humility and unity to reflect the God that we serve. Do you see that picture? That's why he's saying we need to trust Paul. And listen, in this room, I could say the same thing about a number of you. I could say the reason you need to listen to her, the reason you need to listen to him is because unlike me, I have never walked through that situation and I have seen them walk faithfully through that challenge. Paul, he says, Paul's saying this guy, this guy has proven himself in the hardest of times. That's a beautiful picture of what Christ, Christ does in our life. So let's finish this up. Verse 22, you know, Timothy has proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how things go with me. Meaning, I'm not sure how things are going to turn out, what the trial is going to hold. But as soon as I see how they go with me, verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come to you. I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope one day we're going to see each other again. You know, there's a metaphor in here that's really important when it comes to how we live out our faith in the world and we live and follow the king who has died for us, it's this metaphor of a son with a father. What does growth look like in the church? It looks like a daughter with her mother, a son with his father. See, in the ancient world, you didn't get your profession from saying, hey, what do I want to do? <laughs> you know, you didn't look inside and find your desires. You didn't do strength finders. You didn't do any of that stuff. You know what you did? You opened your eyes. You looked at your mother. You looked at your father, and you followed him. And whatever your father did, if your father was a home builder, you were going to be a home builder. And how did you learn to build homes? Well, you didn't read a book. You didn't go to class. didn't get a master's degree. You watched your father. You watched your mother, and as you watched them, you began to repeat the very things that they did. See, that is the story of discipleship in the church. Maturity in the church is not knowledge, it's children. Let me say that again. One of the greatest lies that has saturated the Christian church and why I think in many ways the Christian church is in trouble is we think maturity is gaining the right kind of knowledge, answering the right kind of questions, arguing the right kind of people, getting them to believe with us, no, it's about the number of children you're investing into. And I'm not referring to biological children, and I'm not even referring to people that are younger than you. Do you have proven worth, proven character? The Holy Spirit wants to connect you with people in this room that you can speak truth into their life and point them not to yourself, not to your interests, but to the interest of Christ. Is that our vision as we sit in this room, do we see ourselves as those God is moving upon to influence those around us? Because there are young couples in this room that need marriage, they, they need marriage guidance. They, they struggle. And they need to see somebody who has gone through that and gone through that well and can speak into their life. There are people in this room that need to hear from us. Do we see ourselves as those called by God, not just simply to sit and participate, but after participating and celebrating in that, going out and being an example of what Christ did? Do we see ourselves that way? The church is to be an organization, a, a movement that invests in the lives of the next generation. That's the metaphor that Paul uses for Timothy. And you see this throughout the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Titus 5.3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And then it says, and so to train 
the younger women. Now, I'm going to let you decide who are the older women. I'm <laughs> okay? But the point is, who are you investing in? And listen to this. If someone's going to invest in you, be a servant learner. Hear, hear me on this. When Paul describes Timothy, it says, Timothy served with me in the gospel. When someone's investing into you, you're not sitting back doing nothing because you won't find Paul's doing nothing. Hear me on this. If you want somebody to invest into you, you have to serve. That's where they are. You want to know who the mature are around you? You want to know those that are actively pursuing Christ? It's those who serve because our king, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to see the heart of maturity, you're going to find them moving and doing things, which means you've got to get involved and serve. Because they're not going to be sitting around just looking for someone. Rather, they're going to be active and moving. And you need to start running the race with them and coming alongside them. Those are the kind of people that need to invest into your life. Do you see that? We want to be servant learners. That's the example of Timothy. Now, just quickly, let's jump into this example of Epaphroditus. In verse 25, and I love his name, Epaphroditus, right? It means the favorite of Aphrodite. You know Aphrodite, the goddess of sensuality, sex, eros, all that stuff? Well, this Greek boy was the favorite of Aphrodite. He was born in a Greek pagan family, and he came to follow Christ. Verse 25, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all of you, meaning he's homesick. And he's been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost to the point of death. But God had mercy on him. God healed him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, let me stop. What does it look like to be a father investing in the son? It means being honest about what you're going through. Notice Paul's language. He's not afraid of weakness. Stop men thinking that masculinity is about strength. It's about admitting where your strength is found. In my marriage, my greatest strength is Jesus Christ. It's not me. With my sons, my greatest strength is not my strength. It's Christ in me, the hope of glory. Notice what Paul says. I have sorrow upon sorrow. Well, wait a minute, Paul. You told us to rejoice. Where do I? It's not contradictory. Rejoicing in our challenges is what gets us out of those challenges and keeps us from grumbling, complaining, and becoming more like Christ. It's saying my hope is not in myself to fix this. My hope is in Christ. To be a father, to be a mother that invests into someone else, you have to be okay allowing Christ to show up in your weaknesses because that's what that young person needs to see. Not how great you are and smart you are and how many verses you can quote and how you can sing the whole Bible songs together. Rather, you need to be someone that is pointing them back to their Savior who is Christ the Lord. He had sorrow upon sorrow. And I'm all the more, verse 28, eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And notice again, and I may be less anxious. Wait a minute. Paul, you said... Do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Aren't you contradicting your own? He's like, exactly, I'm not perfect. Paul's not the hero, folks. Timothy's not the hero. Epaphroditus isn't the, it's, it's Christ in them. And he's saying in this moment, I had anxiety, I had sorrow. But instead of looking to himself, instead of seeking his own interest, he looked to the interest of others. So verse 29, receive him in the Lord 
with joy. And notice this is the only command in this passage. Honor men, honor women like this. In the church, we honor the wrong thing. We honor talent. We honor gifts. We honor flash. We honor youth. The church needs to value the right thing. What should we honor? Those who do not look to their own interest, but to the interest of others. What we celebrate, we repeat. And he's saying, when he comes back, you need to honor him. Because when you honor him, that character quality, that proven worth begins to influence the lives of others. Because what we celebrate in the church, listen, we've kind of gotten ourselves in a professionalism in the church and a celebrity pastor kind of view in the church that we have celebrated the wrong things. And there are silent servants that go on every single day pursuing Christ. And these are the men and these are the women we need to honor. And we need to recognize. And that doesn't mean from the front, church. That means you. Because, see, in many ways, the leaders up front, sometimes they follow the crowd too. I'm just as much influenced. We need to look around us and say, thank you for serving. Thank you for sacrificing. Thank you for putting my child, as I dropped him off this morning, ahead of my interest. You put my interest ahead so I could be here today. Do you see that? We have to be a church that is thankful and shows gratitude where honor needs to be found in the laying down of someone else's interest for yours. That is the heart of church. Because, see, when somebody comes in, I can guarantee you that's going to sustain them longer than what I say up front. Because I'm going to have Sundays. I'm not that good. We have off days, things don't work out, all that kind of stuff. I'm a little self-conscious, you know, all that. But the one thing people cannot mistake is love and self-sacrifice. When they see the church doing that for the least of these, they see the heart of God for this community. That is what God's calling us to. And he says, look to Epaphroditus. Now quickly, uh, what is it about Epaphroditus? Just four metaphors. There was one metaphor with Timothy, remember, as a son with a father. With Epaphroditus, he calls him my brother. He calls him a fellow worker, fellow soldier, and also your messenger. First of all, we are family. Now, we are not family in some theoretical sense. We are family, and we need to treat each other as family, which means that we don't give up on each other. We serve and sacrifice for each other, and we don't keep skeletons in the closet. What is the thing that has destroyed more families? Isn't it secrets? Skeletons in the closet, problems that your parents haven't dealt with, problems that brothers and sisters have not dealt with. If we love each other as Christ loves the church, then we are honest about our struggles. We're honest about our weaknesses because the reality is I'm not trying to gain approval from you. I want Christ to reign in me. And if I'm not honest in this community about where I'm struggling, I'm not living as family members. Family members meet each other's needs because they know their needs. Church, do we want to be family? We are. That's what, that's what living as an example of Christ looks like in the world. We're family. But then he, we're workers. Listen, the gospel is hard work. The gospel is not easy. Living life and following Christ, you've got to pick up your cross, count, it, uh, count, count the cost daily, and follow him. It's not easy. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saved by what we do. But grace is not against what we do. Now, when we are rescued by God, we go out and we serve together, which means it's hard work. It's labor sometimes to be hospitable. 
It's difficult to listen to the troubles of others. It wears you out. But in those moments, again, instead of relying on our strengths, we in those moments say, Father, would you give me the strength in this moment to reflect your character to this person? We have to be workers. And then we've got to be soldiers. When he says we are soldiers, he's saying, Paul, Epaphroditus, we are arm in arm, side by side, going out into a, into a world, a battlefield, because the gospel is war. Hear me on this. The gospel is war. Your battle is not against people. Stop tearing down people. There is no place for slander in the church. God did not diminish himself to slander you, and he had every right to. You with me on that? Right? He did not slander us. He did not demean us. He did not provoke us. No, he humbled himself to those who were wrong and were willing to give us, in a sense, his blessing. We are the Abrahamic family who goes out to bless the nations of the world so that God's glory will cover the world like the waters cover the sea. You know what God wants to do through us? He wants every single area of evergreen to be covered with his presence through us. He wants his glory to infect and to impact every single area of evergreen. You know how you do that? By not looking to the professionals. Sometimes what happens is we think, you know, there are those that are called to full-time ministry. Well, if that's true, then there's less than one, less than half of a 1% of people in this church that are called to full-time ministry. That is a lie. We are all called to full-time ministry. Your life is not your own. What does that mean? Hey, it's expressed in a thousand different ways because there's a thousand different people. You may not express it from a stage in a church and leadership in a formal sense, but you do express it as a teacher who seeks not her own interest, but the interest of her students or the interest of the parents by reflecting Christ to them. You do that as a salesperson. You do that as a, someone that owns a company, runs a company. You do that as a software engineer. Wherever you're serving, you do it to the glory of God. And when you run into trials, and trials are at work. I know that. I've, I've sat with you enough times to know there are trials at work. What is the goal of that trial? What are you going to do? Complain and grumble? You're going to be like Israel? Remember that? That applies there. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get personal. That applies where we work. In those moments, I'm not going to look to my own interest. I'm changing the narrative. I don't deserve better. But Christ and his grace and his love for me has died and sacrificed. I am now filled with Christ. And I get to go out and manifest the presence of God in a community that does not know him. We are all called because the last word is this word, messenger. And in the Greek, it's the same word that's translated missionary. In the Latin, it's the word missio, which can be translated messenger or missionary. We are all called by God. We are all called by God as husbands and wives, as students, wherever we are, to reflect his glory to a world that desperately needs to see it. How's it going to happen? It's not going to happen through your strength, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know we want it to, right? We want to walk out there and just have the verse. You know, I heard scripture says the Holy Spirit will give me the verse just the right time. You know, sometimes you don't have the verse and you look like a fool. But you know what's more important than looking like a fool in that moment? is knowing that that doesn't matter. I'm not looking to my own interest. I'm looking to the interest of others. God, in this moment, I, if I was a fool, I need to apologize. I need to humble myself and reflect your character, your grace, and your truth to a world that desperately needs to know. You know what he's elevating here? What I love 
and what he's elevating is, you know who Epaphroditus was? He's just a dude. Listen, he's not a pastor. He's not an elder. He's just a dude. A dude in the church that realized my life is not my own. I have been called by God. And in this moment, I want to be obedient. And even though he ran into challenges, he didn't rely on his own wisdom. He didn't grumble and complain, but instead he trusted God. And listen, he almost died, and sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. But when you're doing that for the glory of God, you're always, you're always gaining. Because in the end, the one, the one who's going to exalt is not you. It's the Father. And in heaven and on this earth, when we are obedient to him, there is exaltation in knowing that God is at work through us. That's a beautiful picture, church. But we need help for that, and we need to support one another in that vision. Do you see that? As we walk out today, know that we're walking out as soldiers, as brothers, as fellow workers. We're not simply walking out as consumers. No, we're walking out as disciples seeking to follow Christ. That's who we need to be. That's our vision. But let's, let's do that together. Father, I'd ask in Jesus' name, the only way we can be this really is in prayer. To start in prayer, Father, to fight in prayer. You tell us that you've given the keys of the kingdom of men to men, but we don't take the keys. And we don't use the keys. Because, Father, we don't pray because we don't think we need to. We don't see our own condition. We don't see ourselves as in full-time ministry called to go out into a world that does not know you, a world that will reject the light for the darkness. Father, we are called and indwelled with your Holy Spirit to be the sent ones, the called-out ones, those who are to be light and salt in the earth. And so I pray in Jesus' name over Bergen Park Church with the lies that we are not called to full-time ministry, would they fall? Would you shake our foundations in a way that leads us to health and to follow you? And Father, would you show us the vision for what life looks like in you and in being an example for what you've done. Thank you, Father, for this truth. Help us to walk it out together in community. In Jesus' name, amen.